because that happened on a previous show where I hogged all the questions. Yeah. I mean, you you were the most excited to have Kaya on that episode anyways. She makes such cool stuff, though. I know. I'm going to throw some yellow. I'll throw yellow around mine, Matt, and I can just throw a green around one for you. You get one question. Hello and welcome to the EDH RecCast, brought to you by the best deck building site on the web for the commander format, EDH Rec. My name is Joey Schultz and I'm joined today by my lovely co-hosts. First up, the speedster whose article series takes you from 60 to 100, it's Matt Morgan. I refuse to recognize that because you're still not calling me the talent. (laughs) Next, we have the man whose articles remind you to look in the margins, Dana Roach. I'm going to refuse to recognize that because I didn't get called a beautiful person this week. And I'm Joey Schultz, author of the Commander Showdown series. Love you guys. Who also oh, is man. swinging 0 for 2. <laughs> All these articles and more can be found at edhrec.com, along with some awesome featured community content such as other Commander podcasts and gameplay videos. EDHREC is a fantastic deck building resource that compiles data from deck lists all over the internet to provide helpful recommendations for new Commander decks. And here on the EDHREC cast, we're going to give all that data a little more context, even though my co-hosts are not the talent or the beautiful. But we do have context. We do have context. Ladies and gents, we have another guest on this week. In this corner, weighing it at 2,500 words per article, the underdog, Mason Brantley. (laughs) Hey, everyone. It's good to be on. Oh, man. I thought you were actually going to guess my weight for a second. I was like, (laughs) I don't weigh a ton. Thank you. No, so as some of our listeners probably know, Mason Brantley writes the Underdog's Corner article series on EDH Rec, and it's a really enlightening series, so we wanted to have you on to talk all about it. Well, I, I really appreciate it, so it's good to be here. Absolutely. I, 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 I've been excited to record at least. Yeah, so Mason, the beautiful, the talent Brantley, <laughs> writes some really cool no. articles. Get out. Wow. <laughs> Slap in the face right away. <laughs> oh, man. The betrayal is real. That's a... This was a real Step act of treason, back. if you will. So here's the thing. We actually do have to be pretty nice to Mason on this episode because Mason has every right to give us a hard time for not having him on previously when we discussed underplayed commanders on episode eight. Sorry, Mason. Well, I remember right after that episode aired, Joey's like, oh man, we just did a, a show on underplayed commanders and we didn't have Mason on. And Matt and I were both like, who? Oh, oh man, that's so cutting. <laughs> Dana's anecdote was was purely exclusive. I knew who you were, at, you know, because you're one of the OG writers, outdating yeah. you know both Dana and Joey for the site, along with me. Yeah, exactly. You've been writing articles for EDA Trek for a really long time, so we're really happy to have you on and you know get to know you a little bit. So let's do exactly that, Mason. Just as a quick introduction, what kind of decks do you typically play? Um, <laughs> well, I think for the most part, I, I don't know, they, they just kind of been, tend to be whatever. So I have currently four decks built in paper. I have a Moldratha, which is, it's mostly stock Moldratha, just your reanimation effects, mill. It's, it's pretty stock. I originally wanted to do, thought about doing like an energy approach to it, but eh, I, I wanted <laughs> to have like a a Rianmare focus. I have a Nazan equipment deck, and I'll talk about Nazan definitely more this episode. Uh, I have Edgar Markov, but mine's more like an aristocrat, aristocrats-ish, mid-rangey kind of thing. Don't really get to play too much, but it, it 
it, it works fine. And then my last deck is a Kumena Murfolk Tribal. Uh, I'm not sure how long that will stay together, but most of the pieces aren't really interchangeable. I think for me, the important part for decks that I want to play is that they do something a little unique or there's something fun about them. And uh, the big point that always trips me up when I start to build a commander is I tend to avoid, like, obviously combo-ish commanders. So, like, Gabe is basically the perfect commander for me. I love tokens. I love 1-1 counters. But he combos basically by, like, you know, you throw your de- you throw your hand up in the air, three cards land on the battlefield, and, well, you somehow went infinite. Uh, so him and Marath, for example, are two commanders I've always wanted to build, but the combo-ness kind of pushes me off. It's funny that you mentioned that. We just had Patrick Sapola on last week for the combo corner. Oh, man. <laughs> we would get along great, I'm sure. <laughs> but I definitely know what you mean. There are a lot of commanders that I look at where I'm like, oh, I would love to. Oh, wait, it does something accidentally different than what I want to do. Whoops. Yeah, and for me, it's a, it's a little hard to build that because like when I build Moldratha, she does exactly what I was expecting her to do, which is recur different permanent types and do whatever. But she does it in like a very fair way. I think that's probably the most apt description of my playstyle is I like to play fair magic. One of my good friends and I, we always talk about legacy, and I'm very set on if I ever played legacy, I would play death and taxes to make everyone's life miserable. Oh my, Atta reminds boy. me of Dean. Atta boy. <laughs> So real quick, before we get into the main bulk of the interview, I want to ask my other two co-hosts if you guys have played any fun games or recently acquired any new fun cards. Well, I took a stab at the uh, the Dana Roach route and uh, bought a, a small collection and was thumbing through and I found that I will never have to buy a soul ring again because there were eight soul rings and I bought the, the collection at a garage sale for 20 bucks. So very um, nice. It's a pretty so good soul deal. Soul rings alone paid for it at that point. Yeah, the Soul Rings bought itself, and there's just a whole bunch of cool stuff in there, like um, Leon and Abunus, um, all sorts of you know just random stuff. I found out that uh, uh, I was going through and trying to sell some of the cards that I don't need because um, I don't need 14 reclamation reclamation sages. I don't need you know all these trilands and signets that that were in there. It was really random, but I, I found out that like Seder Wayfinder, the M15 version, Card Kingdom will give you six cents a piece on but born of the gods they don't give you anything on so i have about 20 extra born of the gods version of Seder wayfinder so if anybody needs some i'm not going to mail it to you because it's not worth it wow dana what about you uh, i'm putting together a mono red laugh list for a lot of the reasons we discussed on the course set preview show so kind of before the uh, we started recording tonight you could just randomly hear me on the mic being like when did shattering spree become 14 dollars well, when did, you know, Gauntlet of Power become a $20 card? It was like, so I went through all the stuff I had and things I didn't have just all happened to be like $15 cards. So now I need to order half a dozen things that are more money than I had anticipated um, paying for. But I'm going to try that deck out. I'm hoping it doesn't do what my Edgar Markov deck kind of did. So when I when Edgar first came out, right away I kind of got on board that kind of real low to the ground, like one CMC vampire train where you want to drop as many small bodies as you can to make as many tokens as you can to just kind of go fast aggro aggro the problem with that deck wound up being just like none of those vampires are fun to play like when you're playing a vampire deck you want to run cool vampires and i wasn't running any cool vampires so with this lathless deck i'm kind of doing the same thing 
I, I hope that by running Lord of the Ground Dragons, I don't wind up being bored because I'm playing none of the fun dragons. But I, I think making 5-5 five, five flying dragon tokens is much more fun than making 1-1 one, one vampire tokens. So I'm hoping that offsets it, but we shall see. I mean, dragons yeah, in general are pretty cool, so... I definitely appreciate you giving a, a, a nice warning to all of our listeners. That way, you know, when your magic Tourette's sets in and you're randomly like, Neheb is five ninety nine, like, they'll be prepared for it. Yeah, and, and you should be, because I'm, I'm still doing that as we're recording, so... Right. Professionals. Oh, good. Right, exactly. I'm multitasking. I'm maximizing the usage uh, of my time. Yeah. Alrighty, so let's get into the actual main topic here. Mason, we wanted to have you on to talk about your Underdogs Corner series, where you write about all of those commanders that don't get to see a whole lot of play. First up, what inspired you to write the Underdogs Corner series? So originally, and I, I had to dig this up earlier, like through my post history, but about probably, I don't know, the October before we started up the articles, I had started making like Reddit, some Reddit posts, and like I'm, I'm pretty active on the uh, most of the magic subreddit, so you might see me around. But I, I started posting these these threads that I just called Commanders in Review, and the whole point of it was to kind of get a little bit more discussion going about certain commanders from different sets. So like I did it in block format. So the very first one was Shadows out of it over Innistrad, which I think had maybe had just rotated out or it had been six months since it and basically it was a question to the edh reddit community like well how these commanders gone for you because there's a thousand and one primers on something like carador you can play like boon boon weaver carador you can play like stock just reanimator but like for for example with the shadows over instra block you can find thesis statements on how gitrog monster combos out with dakmore salvage and how you use the cleanup step to do whatever but you never see discussion about Archangel Avison, Ishkana, Sigarda Herodin's Grace, and how those works, how they actually play out on the board. Has anyone actually built these things, or are they just kind of out in the wind? And Jason Jason Alt found the like my post, I guess, and he messaged me. He's like, hey, do you think this could be an article series? And that's kind of how I got here. He kind of geared me towards the the aspect of Underdog, which, I, which really is what I was aiming for with those those threads to begin with yeah as a just as a quick follow-up observation most of the commanders that you mentioned that you've built such as uh, Moldrotha or Edgar Markov they tend to be a little bit more popular so it was kind of surprising to me hearing the decks that you like to personally play while you're writing about all of these uh these commanders that don't get to share a lot of the spotlight uh, I think I think a lot of that has to do with I get into the brew stage of it and I let my like inner voice talk me down I was like no this will never work this will do whatever and I mean, there's plenty of commanders I've built like in full that I just I've never like committed to in paper because the little voice in my head and all the other dissenting opinions are just like, oh no, this will be terrible. I'm just like, uh, okay. So, what is your metric for an underdog commander? Like, what in your mind makes a commander an underdog? <laughs> so this question it brought up like the memories of when I originally started doing this, and I tr- so I'm an engineer by uh, degree. And so, you know, math. So I tried to, I pulled all the data off of EDH rec originally, like sorted every commander by name, by number of decks they had, by color combination, and tried to make some algorithm, some like percentage base to determine what is an underdog mathematically. 
And that was a lot of work for nothing because I don't do that anymore. <laughs> so, so nowadays it's mostly just kind of, as you guys mentioned on the, the Underdog podcast a while back, just scrolling down the page and seeing things. Usually it's a commander's like, I've never heard of that. I'd never hear people talk about that. Usually, like for multicolor commanders, if it's if it's outside of like the top four or five, you probably have never heard of it. Uh, for monocolor commanders, it's usually like past the 20s is what I usually aim for. Or for um, for one of my articles, I wrote about Kaneos and Tiro of Meltis, and they have 1,600-something decks, I think. So like by number... They're nowhere near being an underdog, like just from a pure numerical standpoint. But compared to its contemporaries with Atraxa, Brea, and even like Saskia, maybe like it doesn't really match up. And so it was kind of finding where these commanders fit. Yeah, a lot of the underdog observations are kind of relative to one another. And especially you mentioned your threshold for an underdog commander in monocolored is very different from than multicolored. And that tends to be because monocolored commanders themselves already see a lot less play than multicolored. Yeah, I'd say that's true. I think another thing for me when it comes to underdog is, like I said earlier, I'm pretty active on Reddit, on a lot of the, the different subreddits at least. And one of my biggest pet peeves of, you know, commander discussions in general is I remember seeing a post about someone saying they want to play Anathens of the Foremost. And a poster, and he ended up being the most voted, like, upvoted poster there, just basically down, talked down to the guy. Like, why would you play the Anathens in this deck when Gabe exists, etc., etc. And, like, it's okay to acknowledge that. I mean, they're underdogs for a reason, like, there's something about that commander that makes them less desirable to play. But where I kind of draw the line is, like, not necessarily, like, you know, just turning an eye to the commander immediately. is like, oh, this isn't that good. Instead of looking at it, it's like, okay, so what can we do with this? Yeah, exactly. If we spend all of our time focusing on the ones that everyone knows are already good, then we can miss a lot of extra value. Yeah. There's also a level, a level of satisfaction that comes with winning a game with a commander that everyone discounts immediately. Right. Dana, I think you actually have a handful of decks that a lot of us have never seen before. You've mentioned you have a Reki History of Kamigawa and then uh, Jeru with Eyes Open as well. So a handful of decks that a lot of people don't usually see in the wild. Yeah, and that's why I play those decks. I mean, that's the main reason I built those decks in the first place is because they were under both, they were underdogs and they were effective. Like I'm not building, you know, Autumn Willow or something where it's genuinely not a good commander i'm trying to find things that are effective but that aren't played because i think there's a challenge both in brewing those decks and there's a definite extra feeling of satisfaction that comes from winning a game with those commanders i agree (laughs) (laughs) so to to make a point about what dana said especially like the commanders themselves are not bad like i'm not trying to you know prove this like oh i can throw like every staple in existence into a mono green autumn willow deck and then went with it. It's like, we're, I'm trying, we're at least with the, the underdog series, it's finding avenues to win and play these commanders because there is a good, a restriction to them necessarily. It's a good point. Not just going for the hipster factor. Like, uh, some people that own EDH centric websites that we know, <laughs> Mr. Don minor builder of Tanawa decks extraordinaire. Yes. He, he actually, in our Slack channel, he has a uh, designated hipster factor when trying to, you know, decide on what new commander he's going to play, so. <laughs> right. Yeah. But uh, 
I, I have a question for you, Mason. Uh, what's some of your favorite underdogs you've written articles about so far? Okay, so I, so I went through the list of them just just because I barely could remember any of them. And I think my absolute... So I, I, I'll, I'll limit it to two. So my very first article was Arjun the Shifting Flame. And I remember when that guy came out, I, was, I read his text box, read it again, read it again. I was like, how on earth does this work? And now it's kind of been figured out. It's kind of like a weird wheel tribal thing. And in my deck, there was, or the deck I built, there was a lot of mill sub themes. So you had things like Jace's Erasure. Like you could have Fraying Sanity now. You had things like Psychosis Crawler. And the aim of the deck was basically to cycle through the entirety of it. Just draw cards over and over and over again. But uh, the reason I liked Ar Arjun, like compared to, say, the Locust God or Nekusar, is I think his ability attacks the game in just a different way because it's not like, you know, casting wheels. Like, he himself is kind of a wheel, especially once you add in draw effects, even draw doublers. I did, I did like, some graphs for because because Arjun was my very first article for the site. I was like, I need to try to impress Jason with this. <laughs> yeah, you don't, need to, you don't had, need to impress him, no. That's that's fine. Yeah, yeah, yeah I had graphs. I would, like, And the graphs, actually, like, they weren't, like, just for show. They actually showed... Like, if you had a draw doubler out, how fast would you deck yourself? Like, how many spells could you cast before you decked yourself? Like, how quickly do you need to find your Lab Maniac if you're going to win that way? And I know Henry's probably hating on me right now, but oh well. He also um, will get over uh, it. Yes, Henry, who hates Lab Maniac. Yeah. Besides Arjun, I think, like, this is... The the commander I'm probably most proud of is Sekuar uh, Deathkeeper. So, for people that don't know... Let me, let me look it up. I wasn't expecting to talk about it. <laughs> yeah, some of us, since since they're underdogs, some of us have just totally glazed right over, and we're all that we have our eyes for the the commanders in the spotlight. Like everyone knows, attracted by heart, but something like Sekuar, it's it can still be good, but we're just like, wait, I have to jog my memory on that one. Okay, yeah. So Sekuar Deathkeeper is a two two generic and then Jun color, so five mana total. He's a legendary creature, orc shaman. He's a four three. And his text box, and the reason you play him, is whenever another non-token creature you control dies, create a 3-1 black and red Graveborn creature token with haste. So, Sekuar is always going to have a place in my heart just because I think it's possibly the best brew I've ever done. Yeah. And I, I don't even have him in paper, which is a shame, which maybe I need to fix that. So, the whole idea behind that article itself was talking about Sekor as a lands commander. And the idea was, you know, animate all your lands, blow up the world, and because Sekor is on the battlefield, you are left with an army of three ones. And that was kind of like the whole point of the deck. It's like, you manifest creatures, and even if it's like a land or a creature or a sorcery, it's still a non-token creature when it enters the... when it dies or goes to the graveyard, however have you. So it was just kind of manipulating and taking advantage of these interactions that at least for me i had never thought about like once i met the connection with manifest it unlocked the idea of having lands and like sacrificing lands to get these tokens so for all those people clamoring for a jun lands commander you could i mean you can try out sekuar i think it would work that's really fascinating and and that's something that we tried to talk about a whole lot when we did our underplayed commanders episode a short while back 
that these underplayed commanders, everyone kind of takes for granted what they can do. And when they do some awesome strategy like the one that you just mentioned, they're completely caught off guard and they don't know how to adjust. Someone might not expect that whole destroy all my lands and all of your lands, but I get a whole bunch of elemental tokens as a result of it because they just aren't expecting it given what your commander does. But you found a workaround precisely because people shoved that person off into going to be punny here but the underdog's corner people didn't actually take it as seriously as necessarily they should and that's that's a really cool thing to hear that's that's really awesome i'm gonna have to reread that article of yours because i'm have i've got to look at sequoia in a new light now yeah it, it also helps that there's a there's a surprisingly large amount of cards and creatures that care about non-token creatures dying so even if sequoia doesn't you know doesn't even appear on the battlefield or just gets blown up multiple times you still have stuff like Karaz to Guild Mage or Golgari Germination that sacrifice or rely on the death of non-tokens. Yeah, as, as a profound necromancer myself, I do love when we benefit from death. Dana, Matt, do you guys have any favorite underdogs yourselves? Um, Ar- Arjun was actually one of mine on my list. I'm a big fan of that card. The other two that I wrote down here um, just for favorite underdogs, I'm a fan of Sapling of Kolfenor, and I'm a fan of uh, Vati Ildal, both of whom are Golgari. And, and I, th- I think they do really like weird, unique things that you don't see a lot of. Um, Vadiel Dal basically lets you tap to turn target creature to give it base power or toughness of one until end of turn. And Sapling of Kolfenor is a 2-5 indestructible, which is always really useful. And when it attacks, you can basically reveal the top card of your library. And if it's a creature, you gain life equal to its toughness and lose life equal to its power but you draw the card so it's got card draw baked into it you know you want to do some top deck manipulation there it's tough to remove so i think they're both like weird unique cards in golgari that do things nothing else really does and they're both in i mean sapling's only in just over 200 decks and vatiel dal's in only 105 um, so they're like they're not frequently played commanders. They both do weird, interesting things that give you a way to build the deck in a way that won't look like any other deck. Um, so those are two I'm a fan of um, as commanders that I think are underdogs and should get played a little bit more just because they're unique. Yeah, for sure. Matt, do you have any underdogs that you like, or is it basically just you know all combo with Narset all the time? <laughs> So I'll have you know I haven't comboed with Narset in in quite some time. That that deck has been torn apart. It's actually kind of an underdog deck now though because it's the Shuyun tokens. You know, draw cards, make more tokens. Draw cards, make more tokens. So it's kind of an underdog way to play the the deck, I guess. I remember just because you know Mason and I we started writing for the site about the same time when we first launched all of our content. I saw his Arjun article. And instantly, it just felt very insignificant. Like I, like I had underachieved in a very, very big way, which is pretty par for the course, actually. Now, but uh, um, <laughs> but no, I just remember seeing just the way that he was uh, just attacking, just the deck building process, lining everything out. Like it was very cool to watch just how other people's brains work outside of you know the the, the decks that. Uh, Mason's written about. I really like Chainer actually. Uh, again, Don Miner, hipster factor of about you know a, a, a minus or so on Chainer. Yeah. And that's the mono black commander that revives creatures if you pay life. Is that correct? Mm-hmm. Uh, it's it's three life and three black mana at instant speed. I believe. Yeah, and it becomes nice. and it becomes I'm a nightmare. Board. And 
Um, but yeah, it's just uh, oh yeah. And when Chainer when when Chainer leaves the battle, you exile all nightmares. So it's yeah, yeah. So it, it's just a very weird card. But just seeing some of the deck lists, just because Don's been talking about it, and that got my curiosity peaked. I started digging into a little bit. And there's just some really cool decks out there. I wanted to pick Chainer as one of my uh, one of my head to head picks for this week, but I have some other spicy ones instead. But uh, I always enjoy. You know, just a, a random out of nowhere commander. Mason actually just wrote an article about uh, Veldic, one of my one of my pet commanders lately. He's definitely fun, so I was I'm glad to see more people kind of giving him some love too. Yeah, Matt is on a mission to mention Veldic every single every episode. episode. Honestly, he needs it. There's there's no reason he should be like the twentieth ranked commander in Dominaria. So here here's a question for you, Mason. Since you know everybody else kind of thought I was a little crazy, but do you think in you know, in a couple years' time, that Valdek could be a top five mono red commander. Oh man, um, my instinct says no, and I think that more has to do with Dominaria itself than it has to do with Valdek. And I think a lot of that is well, one part I, I saw Jason mention this either in an article or in our Slack channel that. Valdek kind of gets overlooked because he's an uncommon. He's not as splashy as, say, like a rare legend. But I also think that there is... You have, like, creative capital with people and with the people that are going to build decks, for example. And each set, there's only, like, a finite amount of that. And that can go towards, you know, Muldratha, Joda, Slimefoot, Jora, And the other commanders kind of have to fight over, like, who's going to build what. Because people are going to are not going to build decks every set necessarily. So like there's a certain number of people that are going to build decks. I think Valduck is going to suffer from that a little bit just because there's other commanders from that set that probably drew people's attention before him. However, I think he's good enough to be in the top five. Probably. I mean, he's, he's, he's one of the most unique mono red commanders. I think he's like the second card ever, maybe to reference auras on a mono red card. It's it's crazy. That's an interesting theory that you that you bring up, and I think you have mentioned also that uh, Jason Alt himself has like discussed that in some of his articles too, where there is a limited amount of brewing potential that people will necessarily dedicate brain bandwidth to when a new set comes out. Not everyone builds a new deck every set, so some of those headliners do take up a lot of the space. That That's a pretty interesting thing, and it definitely results in all of these underdogs happening, but that doesn't mean that they're not necessarily good. Yeah, I mean, I, I've recently faced off against a Valduk deck myself, and I went very swiftly from 40 life to 21 life to zero life. Yeah. Lo looking at the mono red commanders on EDH Rec now, I don't, like, in two years, if Valduk's not in the top 10 minimum, there's something wrong with people. <laughs> oh my. I mean, I'll, I'll take top 10 as a, as a consolation prize. Let's rein it back in. This is the EDH Rec cast, not the Valduk cast. So, <laughs> moving on. So, Mason, often the commanders that you discuss in your articles will have, I don't know, quote, better or, quote, more obvious alternatives. Like, for example, you wrote about Naban, Dean of Iteration. He's a mono-blue wizard tribal commander that doubles your wizard's enter-the-battlefield effects. However, Enala Archmage Ritualist is already available in Grixis. She allows you to copy your wizards whenever you play them. She's got that same uh, eminence ability from the Commander 2016 set. Or, sorry, the Commander 2017 set. Anyway, the point is, there are sometimes commanders that have obviously better... To, to put it one way, they have, like, 
more obvious alternatives available. So what do you say to folks who ask why you're not just building Enola when you're trying to build Nabon? Man, I, I've spent so much time trying to defend Nabon to people that want to say that Enola is just strictly better. And I, and you know, disclaimer, I do think Enola has a higher ceiling. She has more colors. She has access to, you know, black, red, blue. Like she is a more powerful quote unquote commander, but I think people just kind of write off not Nabon like immediately because of that. It's like, Oh, Anala is strictly better. Well, they're not necessarily the same thing. They're doing similar things, and those things, you know, will look very similar in a vacuum. It's like, oh, you're doubling ETB effects, or you're giving haste, making copies. Like, those things in a vacuum do look very similar. But I think part of it for Nabon, the biggest thing for that he has going for him is the fact that his he's very, well, he's very cheap, so he's he's two mana. And that that's more knock against him because of Anal being able to trigger her ability from the command zone. But the biggest thing for Nabon is his ability doesn't cost anything. There's no mana. So, for example, uh, whenever I would goldfish, Nabon is one of those rare rare decks from my articles that I actually get to give the rounds, play test a bunch, because it, like I'm just like, I, I could see myself actually building this. And it was very common for me to go Nabon into a turn three wizard, double its effect for whatever it is, and then just basically kind of play like a tempo kind of game. And most of the wizards, I think about five of the, there are about six to eight wizards that are playable with ETB effects at the three CMC slot, the two CMC slot, or the four CMC slot, if you expand it out. Like, most of the wizards with ETB effects are, well, appropriately costed ETB effects. We're not playing some five mana, like, unsummon or something like that. But... You have something like Aether Adept, you play it like the turn after Nabon, you set someone back by bouncing two things. You play it later, and you bounce like two creatures that are being Dwarf. So you, you basically kind of play this like bounce control game with Nabon, it feels like. And with the new Spellseeker, for example, you can just comp, you can just tutor up a win condition immediately. Or you can play Treasure Trophy or Trinket Mage on curve and get two artifacts from that. Where, say with Anala, you have to wait till turn four because you have to pay that extra mana to get that doubled effect. And really, with Grixis, since it's not known for ramp, that mana eventually does add up. You can't play two three drops on turn six with a Nala and double up either of their effects, but with Nabon you can. That's a, a really good point. Like, even though, you know, we take a look at Inala and say, oh, this is just fantastic for reason X, Y, and Z, like, that doesn't mean that another commander doesn't have their own merits as well. And while maybe Navon has less colors, he does have, you know, a, less of a, a mana tax for each of those cards too. So, like, that helps you, as you mentioned, with tempo. Like, there are definitely things that we might overlook that we really shouldn't when it comes to other commanders. Just because they kind of do something similar doesn't always mean that one is necessarily always better. Yeah, I, I'm, yeah I'd probably say that. I mean, there. I think Anala, like, giving her credit, she has a lot easier ways to close out a game thanks to her abilities. But Nabon can at least control a game, like, for it long enough to move towards a win at least. Yeah, I mean, you're going to probably be winning with combo with Nabon, to be perfectly honest. There's not really many ways to win with Wizards. Well, in that case, we're going to have to talk to Patrick Cipolla again. <laughs> yeah, I, I know there's the uh, the Merfolk Infinite Turns shenanigans with Anala, but me and Patrick would probably have a great conversation. Very lively, very tame, I guess. Civil. <laughs> 
Alrighty, folks, let's move into another segment here. Just to break up the interview a bit, we're going to move on to the head-to-head -head segment. We each pick two cards that are similar-ish and have the others guess which one is more popular, either in general or in a very specific deck. Mason, would you like to get us started off for head-to-head -head this week? Sure. So my idea for head-to-head -head was I've been thinking a lot about when I originally got into EDH and kind of how opinions have changed. So I looked up two of the big finishers, like the, the marquee finishing cards when I originally got in. So my question is, which sees more play in general, according to EDH Rec? Rise of the Dark Realms or Insurrection? Ooh, my ears really perked up with Rise of the Dark Realms because I love reviving all creatures from graveyards. But I hate it when people insurrection all of my creatures too. That's a good one. Um, I, I I can't betray my baby. I gotta pick Rise of the Dark Realms. It's really just totally because of necromancy bias, though. I, I'm gonna go with Insurrection um, in part because I've seen it get played a lot more for whatever reason. Like, significantly more often than Rise, and that maybe doesn't mean anything in the grand scheme of things, but it's I like Rise, but I just see Insurrection get played a lot. And the second reason probably would be that the price difference at this point, I think you can still get Insurrection for less than a dollar, and Rise, I think, is closing in on 10. So It's it's, it's north of double digits now. Yeah, okay. So I'm going to guess both those two factors is why I'm going to go with Insurrection. I don't think that Insurrection is actually all that cheap. I'm looking at a price right now, and it's saying about $8. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah, it could be. Yeah, so... It, it, and that's just it. Like, it's an excellent game-ending card. And when I said I hate Insurrection when people Insurrection me, like, that's not actually true. I think it's a really valid win condition, and I've used it myself before as well. So I, I'm still going to pick Rise of the Dark Realms because, I mean, I just love graveyards. But they're both really sick cards for sure. Matt, what do you think? Um, I'm going to go with Rise of the Dark Realms on the sole basis that I've won more games with Rise of the Dark Realms than I have with Insurrection. So, yeah, I actually haven't seen anybody and play groups for a long time playing Insurrection, whereas Rise of the Dark Realms, it's always fun to, you know, cast it before the other person playing a graveyard deck can do it. So, uh, yeah, I'm going to go with Rise of the Dark Realms. All right, so our winner is Dana Roach Boom. with Insurrection. So Rise of the Dark Realms currently has 7,265 decks it's included in. And Insurrection just ekes it out with 7,402. So it's about a, a hundred and a half difference. Nice. Well, they're both really good cards. What can we say? Dana, what's your pick for head-to-head? -head? Uh, my pick for head-to-head -head is uh, I've got two kind of hefty mana rocks that I that see a lot of play. And this was uh, like usual with these. It's It starts with me wondering which was more popular. And the two cards are Gilded Lotus which is a five drop that you can tap for three mana of any one color. And Thran Dynamo, which is a four drop that you can tap for three colorless mana. So both produce three mana, but one will give you mana of a color and one will give you only colorless. Um, but it costs you one less to cast. So between the two, Gilded Lotus or Thran Dynamo, which is in more decks? Oh, man. Hmm. If you would have asked us this question six months ago before Dominaria came out, I would have been a little more sure that Thran Dynamo got more play. But with Gilded Lotus getting reprinted here recently, I'm not so sure about that anymore. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm not either, but I think I still might pick Thran Dynamo. 
I don't know. This is a really tough one. I like this pick a lot. I I feel as though the longer-term availability at a more affordable price for Thren Dynamo might bias the numbers in its favor. Yeah, That's, well, that's going to be my guess. Well, the thing with Thran, though, is Thran was about $8 until it got reprinted in Iconic Masters recently, so they they stayed around the same price for probably a long time. That is Oof, true. I don't yeah. know. What do you guys think? Um, I'm going to... I'm, I'm going to kick myself if it's Gilded Lotus, but I think it's going to be Thran Dynamo. I don't know. Something, to me at least, the fact, like, the colored mana doesn't really matter because it's always going to be this, like, one like one color. It's going to be three red, three green, three blue, which I feel like limits Gilded Lotus a little bit. Like, I feel like you'll see it a little bit more in monocolor decks, and since monocolor decks don't see as much play, that'll hurt it. And I think for at least for Thran Dynamo, like there's such a difference between, you know, playing a mana rock on turn four versus turn five or turn three, if you're playing green or something like that, where you go, you know, land, land signet into Thran Dynamo into a seven drop where you can't really do that with Gilded Lotus. So I'm, I'm going to lock in and say Thran Dynamo. I'm going to be the voice of dissent. And because I think just with how popular Dominaria is compared to some of the master sets, even though Thran Dynamo wasn't uncommon. Um, I think there's just oodles of Gilded Lotuses going around right now, and I think that's going to give it the edge. All right. Well, going into this, my guess had been Thran Dynamo. Number one, I knew it was in at least one Commander product. Yep. And number two, I saw a lot of the foil copies floating around that were in the from the Vault 20 set. So I had guessed Thran Dynamo, which is in 32,370 decks, which is a good amount. That's hefty. But, but Gilded Lotus is in 38,000 decks. Mm, good 6,000 more Lord. decks. Um, I was genuinely kind of surprised to see that. Yeah, I, I can't say I'm too disappointed, though. I mean, three-colored mana seems aight. Yeah, I well, genuinely well, am we'll, glad we'll, that we'll, it we'll turned out that We'll discuss that in our future segment at the end of the show. It may be very deck dependent. I might end up disagreeing with you on your challenge the stats pick that you're foreshadowing. But but anyway, uh, I'm going to go up next for head to head. This specifically, I'm looking at an underdog deck that I have recently discovered, which is Tabor and Lumia. And is it commander from the original Man. Ravnica block? They're very, very bizarre. But a friend of mine has a Tabor and Lumia deck that really took me by surprise. So... To clarify, because the cards that I'll be pitting against each other in head-to-head do depend on Tabor and Lumia's ability. Tabor and Lumia say, whenever you play a blue spell, target creature gains flying until end of turn. And whenever you play a red spell, Tabor and Lumia deal one damage to each creature without flying. They're a four mana, two blue, red. And they're a three, three human wizard. Pretty weird abilities. Pretty low-key when we look at the majority of stuff that you're doing in EDH. Doesn't sound all that fascinating. But here's the thing that my buddy pulls off in this deck. He plays a card such as Charisma, a blue, 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 three mana blue enchantment that says whenever enchanted creature deals damage to a creature, you control that creature as long as Charisma remains in play. Oh, so you stick this on Tabor and Lumia, and then whenever you cast a red spell, it deals one damage to each other creature, so then you gain control of all of them as long as you have the Charisma attached to Tabor and Lumia. Which is bonkers cool. Is that, however, is that Charisma more popular than the other thing that he can do with that ability, Basilisk Collar, which is an equipment for one, you can equip it to a creature for two, and it gives the equipped creature Death Touch and Lifelink, 
which of these effects do you think is more popular in Tabor and Lumia? Gaining control of all creatures or killing all other creatures? I, I want to guess killing all other creatures in part because Charisma is a fairly obscure card, I think. I did run it once upon a time in like a, you know, tap Tim damage tribal deck that I think was Niv-Mizzet. But I can't say I've ever seen that card get played, whereas was a Basilisk Collar was the other one. Um, mm-hmm. I've seen Basilisk. I think people have Basilisk Collars floating around. I think it's a pretty easy mental leap to make when you're building that deck to go, oh, I'm going to put Basilisk Collar in there. So I'm going to guess Basilisk Collar because I just I think it's something that people have and they recognize that synergy right away, whereas I would bet a lot of people don't even know Charisma is a thing. No pun intended. <laughs> I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to agree, but for different reasons. Um, I just know that in kind of a pinger-style deck that Dana was talking about, you have Goblin Sharpshooter, which goes infinite, quote-unquote infinite, um, with Basilisk Collar because you can tap him to deal a damage, and a creature dies, and so it untaps him, so you can tap him to deal a damage, and it kills something else. And basically, you can you know as soon as they play any number of creatures, you can just tap them and kill them and untap your guy again. So it's a neat little synergy there, and I know it's it's fairly popular among you know those those pinger Tim decks, whatever you want to call them. Um, so I'm gonna go with Basilisk Caller as well. Yeah, I, I'm gonna go with I'm gonna go with Basilisk Caller as well, just because of the the old fat the old factor. Charisma is from Mercadian Masks, and I, I had to look up how old Mercadian Mask was, and it was released in 1999, and the difference between Mercadian Mass and Guild Pack when Tibor and Lumia would have been released is almost the exact same time span between the original Ravnica and Return to Ravnica. Hmm. And I, I just think I just think Basilisk Caller is more well known as a card. So that's all really solid reasoning, but the answer not to sound too much like a BuzzFeed article, but the answer will shock you. It is sort of equal, actually. When we look on Tibor and Lumia's page. Charisma is showing up in 55% of Tabor and Lumia decks, and Basilisk Color is also showing up in 55% of Tabor and Lumia decks. So if I so wanted a I trick went... question, I would have let Dana go. So enough of these trick questions with no real answer. <laughs> hey oh, now, here's, here's the thing. I looked more closely, not just at the percentage, but also at the numbers. Charisma is showing up in 84 of the 152 total Tabor and Lumia decks, and Basilisk Color is showing up in 83 of the 152 Tabor and Lumia decks. So you guys are wrong by exactly one point. Um, so it's not a trick question, Matt. As long as it's an honest, you know, we're wrong instead of a shifty shift that Dana pulls. <laughs> no shiftiness here, I promise. Matt, what's your head-to-head this week? So, like I mentioned, uh, with Chainer, kind of a hipster factor of oodles, uh, for mono black commanders, I got to dig in and I found two other hipster factor to the maximum mono black commanders that I thought were really cool. And, and I know some people have talked about them in the articles for EDH Rec in the past. So I wanted to see which you guys thought had more decks to their name in the mono black category between Hirobi Death's Whale and Corlash Hair to Black Blade. So Hirobi Death's Whale uh, is two in uh, black black for a 4 4 legendary spirit. Has flying, and whenever a creature becomes the target of a spell or ability, destroy that creature. Uh, you might remember that from uh, when Andrew came on the podcast talking about the budget brews. Uh, he made gave creatures banding and destroyed them and stuff like that. Then you also have Coralash Hair to Black Blade, which is also two black black for a legendary zombie warrior. That is a star star, and Coralash Hair to Black Blade's power and toughness 
are equal to the number of swamps you control, and you can pay one in a black to regenerate Corlash, and it has a grandeur ability that means absolutely nothing in a singleton format like we have. So which do you think is played in more decks total, has more decks to their name with them as the commander, between Corlash or Hirobi? I'm gonna... I don't know, maybe this wasn't wise because I didn't win the Rise of the Dark Realms vote this way, but I love Rise of the Dark Realms, so I picked that one, and I love Corlash. I actually played, during the Future Sight uh, era of Standard, I actually played a mono-black Corlash mono-black control deck, and he was just so much fun, so I'm putting my money on him just for nostalgia reasons. Um, Yeah, I've seen a couple of Corlash decks, not a lot, but the couple I've seen is more than the... Uh, Hirobi decks I've seen, the non-Hirobi decks I've seen. So, I mean, again, you know, my experience compared to the world at large probably isn't a good indicator, but um, since I lack anything else, uh, that's why I'm going to go with Corlash in this case. Mason, what do you think? Uh, We're all going to win together or we're all going to lose together because I'm also going with Corlash. And I don't really, I'm trying to find a reason and my only real reason is i've scrolled through mono black's page enough to like i feel like i remember seeing Corlash farther up than you would expect and hirobi just buried in the bottom like while i've been digging for commanders to write about plus i feel like swamps matter is actually like it's a fairly common theme in mono black and Corlash kind of rewards that so and i think also he was for a while there the only commander that cared about knights even though it, oh, it, it yeah. isn't that much, it's still something. So I think that probably helps him a little bit as well. Well, I'll have you know that Corlash is currently number 27 overall in the Mono Black Commander rankings at 155 decks. But you're all going to fail together because Hirobi <gasps> wow. is, number eight, is number 18 with 234 decks altogether. Oh, man. Ah, I went 0 for 3 on the head-to-heads oh, this week. I mean, it's par Not for the course good. for you, so you'll 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 get out. Hey. You'll pull through this one, bud. Alrighty, let's get back to some of those interview questions, though, because I'm kind of interested, Mason. As we've seen from the precon effect, quite often the headliner commanders overshadow the other commanders. Like Arabo, for example, is more popular than Nizan, or uh, Urdragon is more popular than Tygum. Are there ever cases where you think those less popular commanders should be more popular than the headlining commanders? Yeah, I'd, I'd say absolutely. Um... I know DM and I had talked about it recently, just like, you know, do, do people like the non-headliners? And I think Kess Dissident Mage is the biggest example, and I wish I could have used her, like, as, like, you know, verifiable. It's like, this commander needs to be appealed more over, like, Anala, but Kess has finally overtaken Anala rightfully as the top wizard commander. Even looking at the numbers, like, Marisil, who is the third most played commander. I, I feel like he's unique enough and has such a weird play style that he should, you know, encroach on Anala's territory and maybe even, eh, maybe not as close as Kess. Uh, I, I'm obviously going to be biased because I have a Nizan deck. And uh, for for him, at least, I feel like he's hurt a little bit by, you know, a, I feel like some people would be like, oh, cool, cat, like, cat equipment commander. I could just throw all my cats in there when that doesn't really work. And... And it doesn't help that he's green-white, which is not necessarily what people think about when they think of equipment strategies. White, obviously, but usually when people will extend that to equipment, it'll go to red or blue before green, at least. Yeah, it's definitely pretty fascinating. I, myself, I really like Nizan a lot more than Arabo, but it is just always interesting to see that the 
you know, the big name front of the box commanders tend to take up a lot of the space. And like we've mentioned before, talking about those underdogs that don't get to share the spotlight, sometimes they're still pretty darn good. Yeah, Nazan's ability actually is more relevant than you would think. So if, if for people that don't know, Nazan's first ability lets him tutor an equipment into your hand, and if it's his hammer, you can put it into, feel, into the field. But I feel like the ability that people overlook is whenever an equipped creature attacks, you can tap a creature defending player controls. So it gives you an avenue to go wide instead of go tall with equipment, which is something you don't really see that often. So I've, I've had instances before where I've tapped down one of two creatures my opponent controls, and they had the option to block, and I don't remember what it was, but basically what it, it, the end result of it was I hit him in the face with um, a Miri equipped with quite a spike. So it, it does a lot more work than you would expect from a tapping ability. Very nice. So I've noticed you like to write about commanders that make you jump through some hoops um, to actually get done what you want to get done. So Alenda the Dusk Rose, for example, um, she has to die and go to the graveyard um, rather than go to the command zone to get her payoff. Do you think those those hoops are often a deterrent for people from playing those commanders? Yeah, I, I'd, I'd say it is. I, I mean, there's if you look at the commanders that are very popular, they reward you for not going through hoops basically like maelstrom wanderer like is the prime example that you cast him and you get two cascade two eight cmc cascades there's not really much you can mess up with that with a track so you can throw in any number of counter cards and you'll do well you just proliferate everything but with alenda it's like it, it's a, i know a lot of people were in a tizzy about alenda because there have been prece, precedents with say rayhan last of the abs and who it's whenever she died or went to the command zone that her ability triggered. And people really wanted to see that on Alinda. But I think that kind of issue is a little overblown. And usually hoops are a little overblown. There's enough leeway in Wolgaroom, especially with a commander that's you know not going to have a target on its head most likely, that you can get away with those hoops here and there. So the die trigger, you can play into a reanimator strategy. You can, I mean, you can do a lot of things with that. Yeah, and it definitely goes into that whole taking people by surprise. Like, just because you have to jump through some hoops, that might make them think that you're never actually going to do a whole lot because you've got too much to overcome. But once you do jump through those hoops, holy crap, it's a really big board state. You actually, like, can kind of take over a game when you do the thing that people didn't think you good because that commander didn't look very good in their eyes. But you actually met the bar and then exceeded it, which can take people by surprise and really lock in a victory for you. Yeah, I think I think one of the bigger hoops, or at least on that kind of example, is uh, another personal favorite of mine that I'll I'll talk about a little bit is Temet uh, Vizier Noctaman, and his ability. So at the beginning of combat, he gives a creature token plus one plus one and unblockable. And I know a lot of people wrote that off immediately, where it's just like, oh, that's you know that's not a big enough buff, that's not a big enough impact. Well, once you combine that with things like like living weapons come into play attached to tokens so you can there's an equipment from one of the commander products that cuts players life totals in half when they hit it yeah scythe claw yeah scythe, oh, that is the name of it yeah so you can you can immediately give the germ token plus one plus one and unblockable and hit someone with scythe claw and you can do a bunch of weird things with that or you can just play the infect game make some large token and then just go to it 
So I think I think for for me at least, the hoops are part of the appeal of the commander. It's like they're weird things that you're not going to do. It's like yeah, you can play Carador and you know reanimate any creature you want, and it, he rewards you for having creatures in your graveyard. But I don't know. For me, for me, it's just a deck building challenge a lot of the times. So kind of on that note, then Mason, I mean, you talk about commanders that come with hoops attached to them. What are some commanders that you've done, maybe that you've written about that you, you know, gave yourself some hoops to jump through and kind of made them underdogs, like with your your K and T article that you did? <laughs> How, can just talk us a little bit through you know through that process a little bit? Yeah, I think I think the two biggest commanders for me that fill, fit into that archetype are, as you said, K and T. Uh, my article for them revolved around landfall, so playing everything that could bounce lands to your hand, like the Moonfolk from. Uh, Kamigawa to having extra land drops. I get to include the rune ghost combo of generating infinite landfall with a white source. Or there, there's some more pieces with that, but the, the general idea is you have a, a different avenue of winning. And KNT like, enables that. So most people, because of the pre-con effect, as you guys have talked about at length by now, uh, K, most KNT decks are going to be group hug, where mine was obviously more landfall and trying to get as many lands on the battlefield as possible where for that deck since Kanti lets you play an additional it basically reads you play an additional land at the end of your turn for Safi for example she's like the eighth or ninth most popular green white commander and my 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 friend Scott he's actually a writer for EDA he's another writer for us he built Safi and I remember him talking about all the combo lines she has and just how much she like how quickly she can kill you and i remember in my article i covered a combo that a reddit user had posted it was like a 12-step combo that involved reaper of flight moon silver which is this weird mono white fallen angel if you have delirium i don't know yeah i'm looking at it right now and um safi is the 12th most popular green white commander and i feel like like with so many people that kind of gravitate towards you know the spike mentality that she's not more popular because you have access to the revel arc comic guy combos renegade rallier can play into that alter of dementia birthing pod combos there's just so much that she can do but you never see her so it is interesting especially with the uh the kineas and tiro deck that uh matt and that you just talked about you're kind of creating an underdog spin on those commanders when they aren't necessarily underdogs themselves and like we said underdog can sometimes be relative given other peers in certain categories like in the four color commanders as you mentioned at the beginning of the show i'm kind of curious my other co-hosts who are in some cases dana who are beautiful thanks man do you guys ever take the uh take any regular commander that has one particular strategy but like then give it that underdog spin and try to put it in a in a different direction I think in my case, I, I do that more often than I don't do that. I, I had a Mimian Plasm deck once upon a time that was built around plus one counters versus, you know, the usual graveyard abuse that you do with Mimian Plasm. Um, I have a Gliss of the Trader deck that while it does have plenty of artifact synergy, it's based around creatures that have Death Touch. Um, you know, I, I've got a Sphinx Tribal deck, which that just unto itself is 
kind of a underdog um, thing to do. But I'm using Asperia, which doesn't necessarily have any Sphinx synergy and doesn't really scream out as a powerful commander, particularly compared to like Metamai or even the new Azor. But I kind of like the fact that Asperia isn't something anybody worries about either. So that's something I probably tend to do more often than I don't do it. So now I'll put the question to, you know, Matt, who is, I'll admit, occasionally talented. Matt, what about you? Occasionally is is a very loose term, but I'll, I'll take what I can get. One step at a time. One step at a time. Exactly. Um, yeah. I can't so, call you the talent just yet, but not the talent, but just some talent. But yeah, so like I mentioned earlier, my Shu Yun deck, it's a little less spell slinger, go crazy with Shu Yun, giving them double strike and winning through commander damage, and it's more about more about trying to make as many different tokens as I can. Uh, so I have Elspeth Sun's Champion, for example. I have the Locust God, which I won a game with, for example. Um, I have Talrand in there, and just any way to to make a different type of token. Uh, I I think I have thirteen different ways to make different tokens, whether it's a soldier, insect, bird, whatever it is. So that's just a fun little you know side deck that I have. That it happens to be fairly good because just because you draw a lot of cards and you get rewarded for it. So that's one deck that I kind of took away from the the regular beaten path. And I have Moldrotha, and I'm actually kind of thinking about transitioning it away from just, you know, get as many different cards out of the graveyard every turn as you can, and maybe going more Enchantress with it, or just playing, you know, all the, the Enchantress, draw a card, whenever you cast an enchantment type spells. But then also, you know, the, the Vidalkin, whenever you cast an artifact, that way I can cast all my artifact creatures from the graveyard, and artifact in your, or uh, enchantment creatures from the graveyard. So I'm always doing something and just, you know, rewarding myself. Um, the same way, you know, I, I guess, you know, my, my theme for those two decks is just to treat myself, but that is a good day for those of you who know that reference. Yeah. So I, I, I'll, you know, do something different with my commanders every now and then, but not necessarily every deck. Yeah. I, I gotta admit, it's actually the path more traveled is frequently the one that I go down whenever I see a commander, like the reason that I'll build them in the first place is because of the direction they originally point me in. So that giving an underdog spin, I, I kind of have to confess, I don't usually do it myself. But this discussion is definitely making me want to. I kind of want to go out and find a commander that I, you know, that I, I would think would point me down one direction and then try and take it in a different one. Because as we've seen some, from some of Mason's articles, like you can actually put an, an underdog spin on those commanders and they can be very, very effective. All right, we got one last segment here, and that's challenging the stats. Let's buzz through this here. Dana, do you want to start us off challenging the stats this week? Well, I certainly can, since I hinted at this in the uh, head-to-head segment. I'm going to go with Gilded Lotus, which is in, as I said, 38,000 decks, actually 38,617 to be exact, so closing in on 39,000. I think just in general, Gilded Lotus is probably a little bit overplayed. Um, Mason mentioned it when we were talking about it before that it it only makes one color of mana. So I mean, it can get you the one color you need, but it's not going to perfectly fix in a multicolor deck. It's still going to give you one color. So fairly often, that kind of winds up being the same thing as three colorless. I mean, not that's not entirely true, but like it's going to make you one blue and the two colorless you need anyway. So it's it's kind of just making bulk mana. But the real reason I think it's overplayed is, at least when I've played it in the last year or two especially, as a mana rock, it becomes a removal target in a way 
that a smaller mana rock isn't. Like no one for the most part until you know, turn three or four is going to target your soul ring specifically, at least very infrequently. Whereas I found Gilded Lotus just gets hit. Like people see you drop that and invest five mana in a mana rock and they see it's making you three mana. They don't want that in play. So I, I think it's five mana is a lot. A five drop drop slot is a lot. I think it doesn't maybe fix mana the way people think it does. And I think it's just inviting somebody to destroy it in a way that maybe a less effective but also less flashy mana rock doesn't. So I I am on board for a lot of your argument, especially people who play it in a deck of many colors. That is a little rough. I think the the number one most played uh, commander for Gilded Lotus right now is Brea Ethereum Shaper. And she's, you know, four colors, getting three colors uh, th- one instance of three mana that is all the same color with a Gilded Lotus, that can be sometimes a little rough. But with that said, I, I do think it's effective given the right deck. I use it in my uh, Krufix God of Horizons deck, for example, because it is an investment of five, but it immediately refunds three, which is really effective for me. I also have seen it in a Brago King Eternal deck, for example, because he can tap it for mana and then untap it. And then that's really awesome. Well, I say untap it, but he blinks it, and that's really cool as well. Like, there are some decks, especially more along the control style, that I think benefit a lot from a Gilded Lotus, especially when they don't have access to colors that ramp more naturally. Um, yeah, I mean, I don't think it's not that it's effective. I just feel like, particularly for myself, but also having watched it get played, I just feel like a two-drop mana rock that makes you know, one mana, or even maybe a three-drop rock, that has extra utility is something I want to see and play way more often than I want to see a five drop mana rock, particularly when that five drop rock becomes a target in a way that that Felwar stone doesn't, or that commander's fear doesn't. Yeah. On that, I, I will definitely agree with you there. Gilded Lotus often gets the stink eye, but maybe, so like I, maybe in your yeah. meta, no one ever removes your Gilded Lotus. So in that case, well, then you might as well punish, punish them for not doing so. Well, I, I don't know. In my meta, everyone tries to remove me instead of sure, the Gilded right. Lotus. So, you know, give and take there. <laughs> Mason, do you have a challenge to stats pick for us? I do. Uh, so my pick is from Our Dissertation, and when I was looking through it, I I could have picked Mirage Mirror because it's like the third most played card in Our Dissertation. But my pick is a card that is a favorite of mine in my Nizan deck. We'll, we'll keep the underdog theme going with talking about that deck. And it's a card called Uncage the Menagerie. So people probably haven't heard it, so I'll go through it. It costs X green green. It's a sorcery. And it says, search your library for up to X creature cards with different names that each have converted mana cost to X. Reveal them and put them into your hand and then shuffle your library. So I played this card a lot and I love it to death. But there's really only two, occasionally three modes for it, which is you cast it for X equals two, and you tutor two two CMC creatures, or you cast it for X equals three for five mana, and you get three creatures that are all CMC three. And there's only six hundred. It's six hundred and seventy six decks that are running it, and I love it in Nizan. It's it's probably the best card in that deck. That's not an equipment, because in that deck it can it can find any combination of all the utility equipment creatures that I need. But even in other decks, like I'm looking at the top most played um, three drops in Commander, and you have things like Eternal Witness, Burnish Heart, Reclamation Sage, Fleshbag Marauder, Trinket Mage, 
Mentor the Meek. You have all these options, and you find three of those. And for me personally, at least, the three-drop slot is always the one I have to cut cards from because I just throw more and more cards in it. That's, I mean, hey, when you put it that way, that card sounds a lot better than I ever get it credit for. So, I mean, yeah, I'm on board. Yeah, I can't say I've ever seen this cast, but it's one of those cards that whenever I build a green deck, I'm always like, does Uncage work in this deck? And I've not yet found one like where it works enough to run it, but it's something that it's a cool card and I always want to find that right deck for it. And that's really the thing that's, I think, very, very valuable about Mason's articles in particular is that oftentimes when we see something that isn't very popular, I mean, Idiotrek is all about measuring popularity. So when we go down the page a lot farther and we see things with lower numbers, our natural human instinct is to assume that those things aren't as good as the others. And that's just not the case. So getting over our immediate impulse of like, eh, that's probably not as good, right? Like that's what's valuable about reading his articles or even uh, Dean Goody. We've had him on for the Dig Through Time series where he's talking about cards that deserve to see more play. Like these are all what we're trying to do. We're trying to challenge the statistics in all of our articles. We like pointing out cards that you know, the numbers might be a little wrong about just because our instinct is that, ah, you know, that might not be as good. Like, if we give it a chance, we might actually find out that it performs a lot better than we initially thought. On the opposite hand, I'm going to be talking about a card that I think is seeing too much play. Uh, listeners who are also listening to the Command Zone podcast probably heard them on a recent episode talk about the card Phyrexian Arena. This is a card that I mentioned back on episode 12 that I might dedicate a little bit of time to, and I'm going to talk about it now. Phyrexian Arena is a 3-mana black enchantment, very classic, it draws you an additional card on your upkeep and it, you lose a life for it. Like I mentioned, I used to run a Core Lash deck back in the Future Sight days, and Phyrexian Arena was a huge part of that deck because it keeps my hand full. And it's a great card. It definitely deserves to see a lot of the play that it sees. Currently, it enjoys play in 40,353 decks. My problem is that I think that might be a little too high, because while it is a really good card, it's not the best black draw spell ever. I know, gasp, shock, all around. But hear me out, sometimes playing a one-off spell can be better. Phyrexian is really good, especially if you get it down early, because it will consistently draw you cards throughout the course of the game, but kind of like Gilded Lotus, which Dana mentioned, it can be a removal magnet itself. Or even if it's just sitting out the vulnerable in general and it dies to an Oblivion Stone or to a random Decimate, like, that can kind of cut you off. I've really been enjoying playing cards such as Knight's Whisper, a two-mana black draw spell which draws you two cards and loses you two life, or in a three or higher color deck, Painful Truths, which lets you pay three mana, draw three, and lose three. Those have been really effective for me, and it's just immediate. Bam, it's right there. I immediately get those cards, and I don't have to wait for them. Like, when you draw a Phyrexian Arena late in the game, it, it just doesn't help you, and you need to wait at least three turns for it to be as effective as the Painful Truths, and sometimes you don't have three turns when you need cards right now. So while I do like Phyrexian Arena, I kind of have to knock it this week. I don't think it's necessarily as good as everyone says that it is. Do you guys agree? Disagree? What do you think? Well, I, I kind of responded to Josh Quiet on Twitter, and we we had a little bit of a back and forth about it. Because um, I, I think he's right, and I think DJ was right as well. I, I do think it's probably a little bit overplayed, but I don't think there's replacements for it. I think you just run all of those cards. I think you run Night's Whisper and Sign and Blood and Read the Bones and Ancient Craving and Ambition's Cost and Phyrexian Arena. Because I, 
I, I'm a firm believer that no one's ever walked away from a game and thought, man, I would have won that game if I wouldn't have had so many ways to draw cards. So I'm like, yeah, I mean, is Knight's Whisper great and, you know, better maybe in more occasions? Sure, maybe. But like, I've just never felt like I don't also want Arena in a deck in addition to all those other draw options on top of it. And that's actually very fair. Maybe really what I'm doing for Challenge the Stats this week isn't saying Frick's Arena should see less play. Maybe what I'm actually saying is Painful Truths should be seeing more sure. play. Yeah, I'm, I'm all on board with that for sure. Um, I think with Fraction Arena, it also can be meta dependent. Like if oh, yeah. you're playing it, if you're playing in a meta that that allows enchantments to just stick around, then yeah, sure, run it. I, I'm always really iffy about upkeep triggers to begin with, and I, I go back and forth on whether I think I really like Fraction Arena or not. Because at least for me, if I saw it, I would just like it's like all right, cool, I'll play a recommendation stage and just blow it up immediately because I don't like letting people draw cards consistently. And I think one thing I do, one good point about Arena that I do like too is if you are someone who runs a couple of tutors, um, particularly if you're not running them as combo pieces, but you're just running tutors as a way to get an answer to a particular problem or to get whatever is most useful for you at the time, being able to grab that Arena with that turn one vamp tutor or that turn two demonic is a really nice play versus, you know, I'm not going to want to go grab Knight's Whisper with that vamp tutor on turn one or turn two. And you know, maybe you should be holding it too for longer. But like, if you're grabbing that arena, that gives you a chance to maybe draw down to fu- to future answers. So I do think it's it it has uses in a deck as long as you have other options as well. Yeah, it's definitely a a great card. I I don't mean to contest that. I just I also think that it's spent a very long time in the spotlight, and we should you know kind of widen that light a little bit it's not the end-all be-all of black draw spells it sometimes it, there there are certainly at least cases that it isn't necessarily as good and that's all that i want to sure. do we should raise critical eyes towards certain cards and not treat them like they're godlike that that's sort of all that i'm saying it's a great card but sometimes there are instances where others are better and you definitely want to make sure that you supplant your deck with those as well yeah, I think yeah, the, the more competitive your playgroup is, the less good it gets. Um, yeah, definitely. If you're, playing, if, if you're playing games and just, you know, you and your 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 buddies, you know, whoever you play with, if games go long and you kind of play the battle cruiser style, Farrex and Arena is great. Don't don't think it's not. I just think the the less triggers you're gonna get out of it, the worse it, and worse it gets. So if you're playing, you know, an arms race type of playgroup where everybody's you know, winning turn four and five, Arena's probably not going to be that great for you. Uh, it's just very playgroup dependent. I think a lot of those people are saying you should play less Phyrexian Arena. I mean, maybe they have a little more competitive edge to them. I mean, that's one thing to keep in mind. So yeah, I, I like we've all kind of said, if you're playing with more competitive people, maybe you should look at Read the Bones, Sign in Blood, Painful Truths, all those different types of card draws or card draw spells that get everything in your hand right away. But if you're playing those grindy fests, by all means, Phyrexian Arena has way more upside than all the others. Right. If you're in an Olero deck, like that's going to be a long game, so you should definitely err on the side of Arena cards. But if you're trying to just get a one-off blast in like a Kalia deck, for example, like, I don't know, Painful Truths definitely is something that I'm putting in before I put in the Arena. Let's face it, the Arena probably makes the cut too, but, you know, Painful Truths, getting a one-off effect in a speedy deck is especially nice. 
anyway, enough about my pick. Matt, what's your challenging the stats? So my challenging the stats is for a cycle. And we've had contentious arguments in our Slack channel before. I know uh, Dean Goody and I, he and I have butted heads quite a bit. Not so much, you know, saying we're wrong, but more just trying to, to repeat our arguments. But I'm going to argue against the cycle, and it's for a, a set of lands. And I'll let you guys guess if you think, because I know we've had the, the conversation fairly often, but what do you guys think is a set of lands that I would have been saying is overplayed in Commander? The cycling lands? No. I love cycling lands, actually. I think they're pretty uh, great. It's an older set. An older set? Yeah, it, it's it's modern legal. It's great in 60-card formats, but it's terrible in Commander. At least I think it is. The the fast lands? Yes. Yeah, so so the fast Alrighty. the fast lands from Scars of Mirrodin, uh, which that's going to be your, your Black Cleave Cliffs for Black Red, Razor Verge Thicket, Seachrome Coast, Dark Slick Shores... They're ally color lands that enter the battlefield tapped unless you control two or fewer other lands. So for me, these have to land so early to be even relevant. Otherwise, you're playing just a guild gate. Literally, they just come into play tapped no matter what. I don't think that you can reliably have them untapped as a dual land early enough in a singleton format like Commander that they're going to be worth it, especially from the, the financial side. These All of these are 10 to 15 bucks. Black Cleave Cliffs actually is the most expensive because it's a 60-card all-star. It's a $50 land. That's $50? Black Cleave yep. Cliffs is $50. Yeah. Yep. My goodness. There, yep. There's several really good decks in Modern right now that are playing four of them. And yeah, it's just a high-demand card. But all of these are $10. And for something that a lot of the times is going to be a guild gate... It's just not worth it. It's not worth something. You know, we talk about the the battle lands or battle bond lands, where unless you're dropping it super super late, where it doesn't matter, these you have to play super super early. Otherwise, it's it's really bad. So, I think if you were playing the fast lands before the cycle of lands, I think you replace that with the battle bond lands because they're going to be good. They're going to come in untapped for much longer in the game than just those first few turns. Yeah, and you aren't kidding. Some of these fast lanes are actually be they're seeing a whole lot of play. I'm taking a look, for example, just right now at Razor Verge Thicket, which is the green and white one. That one's showing up in 3,550 decks. That's a whole lot for an $11 card that is also sometimes normally just the equivalent of a guild gate. Yeah, the equivalent of a card you could have picked up after a, a, a draft of one of the Masters sets. And, and Dark Slick Shores, that's the number one played fast lane. That's in uh, 3,905 decks total. But that's getting more play than stuff like Platinum Empyrean, uh, Azuri Renegade Leader, uh, even well, stuff like... Well, everything should get more play than Azuri Renegade Leader. <laughs> Rene Renegade Leader is not Cloth Progress, though. He's the one that you Oh, can... I'm sorry. I just had immediate PTSD. I just had a, I, I said, a sudden moment when I, I heard the word I said the E word. Azuri. I'm it, sorry. It, it's okay. It can't hurt you here. Yeah, but, but Dark Slick uh. Shores gets played more than Necroticus, and Necroticus is played in all sorts of graveyard combo decks. Joey, I know you can, you know, relate to that, but... It's just crazy that some of these cards that these fast lanes are getting more play than. I mean, even stuff like Semblance, Anvil, or Liquid Metal Coating, like a lot of those utility artifacts and all those Brea decks, these lanes are getting more play than that. And they're, it's something that, yes, they're great early on. I will not deny that, but it's so... The floor is very low on these. The ceiling is very high, obviously, but there's such a range if these are going to be good or bad that when you need them on your fourth or fifth land drop... These are going to be tapped. It's 
it's like Frexian Arena, like you said, it was, you know, the, the, the faster and more tuned your meta gets, the worse Arena gets. Well, it's kind of this, the same thing here. These are only good in that same, in that environment. It's the opposite of the Reno. Like when, you're, when your meta is really tuned and fast, these are pretty good because the game's going to be over, you know, on turn five. So three quarters of the time you drop this land, it's going to come into play untapped. And that's great. But if you're looking on the table and you're like, man, most of my games go to turn 15, then this land is a guild gate 90% of the time. Yeah, I, th- I think that's the biggest thing with it is like I'm, I'm thinking through like the math of it. If you're playing like a three color deck, you're playing three of these, and to like get value out of one of those lands, it needs to be in your first like ten cards. Like you know, start with eight cards in hand, draw, draw on your third turn. Like it needs to be in those first ten to get the advantage of playing it untapped. After that, it's a guild gate. Yeah, well, like, but when you think about you know, if I would have asked you today, what's played in more commander decks between Razor Verge Thicket? Or Grand Architect, I don't think there would have been a question. I think you know Grand Architect might be a little narrow, but it's still very powerful, especially in artifact-centric decks. But Razor Verge Sick has played more, and it's a, not the greatest dual land you can be playing. As a total side note, earlier, Matt, I, I appreciate that you mentioned me and Necroticus and Graveyard Synergies. I just appreciate that to get me over my Azuri moment of panic. You, you mentioned Graveyards to soothe me back down. I, yes. I do appreciate I, I, I made up for the E word with the G word. The E word. <laughs> hey. My goodness. Necrotic ooze is like your, um, it's your, what's the word I'm looking for? Helper animal? It's your therapy. Spirit animal? Therapy pet? Oh, therapy. Yeah. No, not necrotic ooze, but definitely mimeoplasm. <laughs> or Rise of the Dark Realms, which as we learned is less popular than an insurrection. Mason, thank you so much for coming on the show. Do you have any other last-minute tips, tricks, anything like that for the underdog's corner? Not really, but if anyone has ideas for Rona Disciple of Jix, let me know, because I need help with that. (laughs) (laughs) All right, we can look forward to that next article. Sounds awesome. With that, I think we're going to be calling this episode to a close. I'd like to thank my co-hosts so much for joining me, and if any of our listeners would like to get in touch with us, where can they find you all? Matt? So you can find me on all your social medias uh, at Mathemus55, that's M-A-T-H-I-M-U-S-5-5, and shoot us an email at edhretcast at gmail.com. You can find me on the Twitter birds at Dana Roach. I'm fairly active on there, and you can hear me every Monday morning on CMDR Central talking about Commander. If you want to find me on Twitter, it's K underscore Mason64, and on Reddit, it's uh, U forward slash needs underscore improvement. Awesome. I'm Joey Schultz. You can find me at Joseph M. Schultz on Twitter. As we may have established this episode, I am not Joseph the Talent Schultz, nor am I Joseph the Beautiful Schultz. It could be that those titles do, in fact, belong to my co-hosts. Oh, we know they do. You can follow EDHREC and the EDHREC cast on Facebook, and we're doing a giveaway when EDHREC gets 5,000 likes and when EDHREC cast gets 1,000 followers on Twitter, so head on over there to smash those like buttons for a chance at a cool prize. You can also contact us, as Matt mentioned, at EDHRECcast at gmail.com, and you can also find us on iTunes. And if you do, please consider leaving us a review to help other folks find the podcast. This podcast is posted every week on EDHREC's community content spotlight section, where we feature as many other content creators as we can, from Command Zone to Commander's Brew to Commander Versus, not to mention new articles published every day by our own fantastic team of writers. We'll be back at you next week with more data and insights, and until then, remember, EDHREC your deck before you wreck your deck. Dana, as a nice closing button, you should shout out some laughless thing that you were. Braid of fires, $16. What the hell? What the hell?